Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 209. Today on our show, Dwayne Pullman from Local 12. And he pointed uh, a, a machine gun right at me. He's pushing up against me. I'm like, journalist American, journalist American, over and over. And one of the Saudis, God bless him, came over and put his arms around me and between the guy with the gun and then walked me over and he said, this is time to pray. So I've known Dwayne for almost 40 years, but I haven't spoken to him since probably the late 1980s. Wow. Yes, we both worked at the same college radio station, as you'll hear, but don't worry, we didn't go too far into the weeds. We mostly talked about investigative reporting and some of the harrowing experiences he's had, anchoring the local news, and his thoughts on Cincinnati as a place to live and work. A lot of good stuff. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to Dwayne Pullman about working in the news business. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. Who would have thought uh, all those years ago (laughs) this is where we'd end up? Unbelievable. So for for the – I may have explained this in the intro uh, that I'll do later. uh, But, of course, uh, Dwayne and I know each other from way, way back. We worked at the same college radio station at Bowling Green State University. WBGU, uh, if I can remember it, we said drown in the sand. Yes. I wish I still had my T-shirt. Music from the bottom of your dial was the other one. That's right. Yeah. Man. And, of course, I was on the news side of things. Yes, I was going to say. Yeah. So from Delphus, correct? Yeah. Okay, I remember Mm -hmm. that, yeah. And we remember we were talking about uh, Mark Metzger, also from Delphus, who also worked at the station. But um, So were you always interested in news growing up? And no, it's it's kind of weird. By the way, there's an interesting story about that funny name Delphus. I'm very proud of that town, by the way. It's a unique little town that has produced some amazing people. And uh, you know, I find that you know, settings like that, Cincinnati has a ton of these settings of kind of small town Americana and what that does and it, you know, that stability and what it produces. I, I'm really a fan of these, what they call now fashionably micropolitans, right? Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, when I was in the South, and this is it, when I first got out of uh, uh, BGSU, I went from Fort Wayne to Terre Haute to Roanoke. That was my first kind of year in the business, three moves. And I ended up in uh, Virginia and North Carolina uh, for a good amount of time, uh, about seven years. And down there in places that were remote, they would I would be known by Dwayne, and it would be like called, "Hey Dwayne, I got a tip for you," you know that kind of stuff. And then when they would ask where I was from, I would tell them I'm from Delphus, Ohio, and they go, "Oh, Dwayne from Doofus. All right, gotcha." <laughs> um, so I stopped saying that, and they said, "Where are you from?" I said, "From Ohio, man." And yes, that's all you need <laughs> so, to know. So, yeah, um, it's been an incredible journey, man. I, I, you know, back when I started in TV, really, in eighth grade, in the middle of a town of 8,000, we were lucky to have a what was called the TV programming class. Great guy by the name of John Gunder taught me. And he let me do it, even though it was a junior, senior high school thing. Yeah, same. My, my um, high school, yeah. So I kind of got involved in that. And then I'll do this quickly, but... You know, I, my first uh, experience with TV is he wanted me to call football games. And I didn't know anything about football. I was a basketball guy. And so we studied and studied and studied. And 
lo and behold, the first game, I I know, you know, I slants all kinds of stuff. I know everything that's going on. I get the idea of the game. And the first kickoff, uh, <laughs> a guy from uh, the opposing team, I forget which team, might have been St. Mary's. Anyway, gets the kick, and he's running, and he's breaking loose. I go, he's at the 40, 45, 50, tackled at the 54-yard line. So after that, everything was huh. done. Well, if you you were in Canada, you'd have been fine. (laughs) Calling a game. Say it again. If you were calling a game in Canada, you'd have been fine. There you go. I got got so much heat for that. I was like, yeah, I don't think sports is my thing. I have a very similar story. I was calling a basketball game in high school, and the guy that was supposed to be my color commentator, he goes, oh, yeah, I know all the rules. So I figured he would know all the referee signals and everything. I didn't know any except traveling the obvious ones. Um, so anyway, we're doing the game and I concentrated on, I knew our guys and I had to like, I had like a half hour to memorize the opposing team's lineup so I could call. And with Joe Tate like effort, I think I put in a pretty good play by play, uh, call. But, uh, it, when he, there was a charging call and I didn't realize that you hit the, I guess it's the back, they touch the back of the head and point four. that's charging. I didn't know that. Cause like, I wasn't a big guy. I was the opposite. I was a football guy, not a basketball guy. And so, yeah. And so, uh, the, uh, my co like my color commentator didn't know. And he goes, I don't know what that is either. I'm like, Oh, it's, it must be a back of the headphone. I was joking. That's all anybody talked about after the game. Not that I knew everybody. And I was calling it again with with Joe Tate, like precision. All anybody remembered was oh back of the headphone PF. So, well, it's, you know, those are the things that uh, stay with you. I I find that some of the mistakes and there've been many, um, those stay with you. And it's, it's those formative years that are incredible, but, you know, look, you asked me how I got into journalism. Yes. You'll remember the name Emil Dansker from uh, BGSU. So Emil Dansker, maybe you don't. Maybe you didn't have a lot of experience, but Emil Dansker was the, uh, well, actually, you probably didn't because he left uh, in, just before 87, um, just around 87. Um, <clears throat> he was the incredible professor. I don't want to go too, too deep, but he was a Marine uh, I was at Arlington um, last year or the year before when he was interred. Uh, oh. he, he, he was a decorated Marine. He was an incredible guy. And he was one of those guys that just everybody, if you're lucky enough to have one, can give you kind of the pointing of North Star. And what he did is he lit the fire of journalism. And that was at Bowling Green. And... Um, you know, I would get papers handed back and I couldn't even see my writing anymore. It was all red. And he <laughs> said, that's a nice start, Mr. Pullman. That kind of professor. <laughs> wow. So kind of a goodwill hunting kind of... Uh, the paper you know, chase? Journey. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, but anyway, he was incredible. And what's really interesting is you don't get this in life a lot. But when I decided to come to Cincinnati and I've been to so many markets... When I decided to come to Cincinnati, Emil was still here, so and still very much alive, and still very much himself. And uh, we talked uh, not regularly, but enough. And we had uh, lunch one day. He was starting to decline, and uh, he he told me, you know, look, I'm really proud of you, and and carrying it forward. And you know, every one of us should get those kinds of moments from those godlike figures that surround us in the early years. Uh, I think, uh, uh, and he's the reason that I started a board position with the Cincinnati pro chapter of uh, society of professional journalists. He started the thing. He was one of the founders of that. And then just as a nod to him, just so you know, the BGSU journalism program has gone through a lot of challenges. They have an incredible um, facility, but they still have some challenges with the program. So I'm chairing their journalism uh, advisory group. Uh, we started that about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and we're trying to uh, do what we can to get that program back on track. So that's all because of Amel. That's the way he was. Wow. So like, as it, when you show up at Bowling Green, are you more interested in TV? Are you interested in radio, just journalism in general? Yes, all of it. All of it. Okay. Uh, I, I really honestly, the one thing I knew at the time is I didn't want to do uh, um, newspaper. And that's because, you know, you're young and dumb and you think fame is a thing, right? So you, you get recognized more quickly doing 
the TV and radio stuff. So I don't know if you remember, but probably I had stopped about the time you would remember. I used to also DJ at uh, WBGU. I always took the midnight to three. And I ru- so I showed up in 84. So yeah, yeah I was still doing it. Yeah. So do you I, remember my name back then? Yeah. Oh, I, that's what I wanted to ask you this, because I haven't heard this and I didn't want to say this in our, the two couple phone calls we've had to set this thing up. Does anyone okay. still call you Dewey? Yeah. A lot of people still. Oh, do. Okay. Uh, so that was my nickname. Yeah. When I was in that small town because everybody in a small town has a nickname. Oh, okay. So I, I had like, uh, you know, it's weird. I remember these uh, friends of mine, they're Bear, Apple, uh, and everybody had a nickname. So I became Dewey. And it's like, wow. And I couldn't shake it. So when I went to BG, I was like, okay, so my middle name is uh, Stevens. So I was Dewey Stevens. And if you recall that, oh, yeah, do yeah. Recall, do you recall that Dewey Stevens was this kind of like cheap wine that was being sold at the time? That I don't remember. So, so anyway, it, it just was a thing, but we had a really, I, I liked DJing because I would just pick records at random from really bizarre named groups that were in that smelly library. If you remember that mm-hmm. library full of the records that just had that kind of vinyl and cardboard, uh, I, I guess also a mold smell to it, but, uh, yeah, I would just spin it and I would, I, I really loved that era because it was alternative music and experimental and that was kind of cool. And I did like it, but I always just gravitated to news because I, I'm, I, I'm kind of one of those guys that never takes the first answer as being the truth. So, uh-huh. you know, I just got, I got enamored with, uh, with, with it, you know, going down that lane and it just took off. I, what I wanted to do. And here I am 35 years later as a professional. If you counts, I started in God, I, this really dates me. I started as an eighth grader. Okay. So I can count just around TV 78. What is that? 40? How many years? I don't know how many years that is. 44. Something like that. Yeah. To 44. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm 25 and I've been at it 44, 44 years. So wow. it's, it's been incredible, but uh, I just, what a ride. And it, it really is kind of cool for this reason. I don't know if you feel this way, PF. You've had a different journey. But um, there's not a day that goes by I don't know this isn't what I'm intended to do. This is exactly what I was made to do. So I, I've known that the whole way, which is, I guess, unusual from people I talk to. Yeah, it's weird. I just only started feeling that way lately. I don't know if other people feel that way about what I'm doing, but that's, I think, kind of all my weird talents and interests have kind of come together in this job weirdly and uh yeah that's it's kind of strange how things work out i was going to say too when when did you become news director at bgu was it uh that would have been i think it was 85 okay news director till like early 87 somewhere around there okay i was trying to because you were probably one of the first people to influence me to take it seriously uh, from being in the staff meetings and stuff. And then when I, I think I was underwriting director first, um, because I figured I should probably do, they, they wanted us to do more than just DJ. And, figured, and the only thing that was open was underwriting director. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And was terrible at it. But, um, cause no one wanted to give us money. But, and then I became music director in the fall of 85. But, um, I was, I always remember being in staff meetings and thinking, uh, you know, you and, and Burris were taking it pretty seriously and like, Hmm, I, you know, I should probably be taking this seriously too. And, well, uh, Glenn, Glenn Burris is, was a very serious guy and probably one of the most intelligent uh, people uh, from that era. Um, I haven't kept in touch with Glenn, but he was he was a like a meteoric genius type. He just had that in him. Yeah. And I remember you, P.F. I remember you being kind of unsure, a little bit shy, didn't want to speak out and stuff. And all I wanted you to do back then is because I was like, Bleh, <laughs> is just be yourself and jump in because I, I always saw you as you were excited. About yes. Do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that was, that was what I saw. Do you remember Jim Bickle? Remember yes. Him? I'm still Bick. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I still quote to this day. We, he was in a, with Burris. He was standing next to Burris. I'll, I'll always remember this. And, uh, he was getting, he was, uh, he, he was operations manager, I think, or something. Yeah, and was. they were having problems with people not 
doing the turning the transmitter on and off properly or things like or doing the things they were just supposed to do and uh he would say yeah people and don't tell us that you burris said don't tell us that you only work here what do you say to that jim and bickle's like i you you should live so long and i (laughs) that's from some catskill comedian i can't remember who Um, yeah 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 i should and to this day i still say you should live so long in fact i told him that on facebook the other day and he thought that was really funny but uh yeah i remember bick from were you? Did you? Were you part? I'm sorry. This sounds like two guys talking. I don't know how many people are interested, but do you remember? Were you part of that retreat that we did? Yes. Or was that before yes. You yeah. 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 One up in Michigan. Yeah, I don't have much recollection about the retreat. Obviously, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were. We. Were, I don't even remember where we went. It was some place. Some pl- in Michigan is all oh, I remember. Sorry. I remember uh, moments. And, and Kelly stuff. Jones is the one that secured it, and um, yeah. she was. I can't remember who the guy she was dating. He was he was the one that did the the uh, the disc jockey training. We're we're really getting into the weeds here, folks. I'm sorry. Yeah, but. <laughs> no, no, it's fun. But you know, look, the thing that I'm starting to understand, and we did we don't often appreciate. I think there is a message. It's basically, you know, I've been so busy uh, from the moment really that I I gravitated toward journalism. It took a hold of me, and I just ran, and I've been running for a very long time. And in the midst of that, I mean, I could share, you know, it's not exactly a wonderful personal uh, journey, you know, from a personal point of view, I'm on my third marriage. And thank God I found just an incredible uh, wife who is just the sweetest person I know. I'm blessed with a son. Uh, I'm helping her with her three sons and that's really cool. But it happens, dude, in a blink of an eye. Yep. I, 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 you know, I never pictured, and when I hear it, you know, I hear my voice, I'm still hearing that 20-something, Dwayne. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And so it's kind of creepy, I guess, in a way, because, you know, we're, I'm moving, I'm 58. I'm, I guess you're younger, actually, but um, so. Not I'm, much. <laughs> What's that? Not by much. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But I'm 58 and I embrace it because, um, you know, it, it really has put me into a situation where I get it. And the fact that I'm viable on a big level with television because I distribute nationally, I, I sound like a, I don't want to sound like a commercial dude, but I am in commercial television. Yeah. It, you know, here's what I, just to lay it out. The experience that I've gotten, I've always been volunteering. That came early on. I've always jumped in and volunteered. So I've been on numerous boards. I'm on a, I, I chair the uh, Society of Professional Journalists Professional uh, Standards and Ethics Board, which is a pretty big deal nationally to do that. And I was invited by uh, Rebecca Aguilar, who's also a Bowling Green State University uh, graduate, by the way. That's weird. So uh, we didn't know that until she called me and said, I'm interested. I was like, wow. Uh, So anyway, I'm doing that. I'm doing the local SPJ. I'm chairing the, uh, the, um, the chairing the, the board to reinvent journalism. Plus I started 12 years ago, the, the nonprofit in Ohio, nonprofit news called Ohio center for journalism. So I'm crazy busy. To do stuff. And what the commonality is, and we should talk about this a little bit, I hope, is that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring to bear thought leadership to reinvent journalism because it needs to be reinvented, but also to uh, reconnect to the foundation of journalism. I mean, there are debates right now, PF, I don't know if you're aware, uh, within journalism about whether objectivity is dead. That to me was shocking because I look up objective. It says, put your personal feelings aside. That's the first part of it. And I'm like, you know, I understand the esoteric part of the argument that, you know, we can't be objective. Being a white guy is hard to do that. But if you extend that forward, sorry to get your board on this, but if you extend that uh, forward, that means that things like trials and stuff don't have any uh, legitimacy either. And I, I don't think we're at that point. I would hope not that we still think I still think that people could put aside the personal feelings and 
and gravitate to something bigger than themselves or, or be defined by me being a white guy. I don't define myself first as that. Yeah. I define myself as a father, husband, and journalist. That's how I define myself. And it's weird. In an, in an age when we have eas- the easiest access to information we've ever had, we seem almost more, more misinformed than we've ever been. It's good. Well, I think, I think, you know, the interesting part about, as I, as I look at it and I debate, you know, how to fix this. I mean, one of the things I think we need to do as journalists is we need to adhere uh, and it's dangerous talk to some, but we need to adhere to standards and, 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 you know, the SPJ uh, Society of Professional Journalists has the greatest document for that, which is the uh, code of ethics. And if everybody would just raise their hand and adhere to that, I think we'd be a lot better off, which is, you know, transparency, factual based reporting, uh, a lot of other stuff. You should look at it. But the other the other part is, um, you know, I say this sometimes I'll get weird on you. Let me get weird on you, because back when we always said whatever, you know, just say it. By all means, there's an old Hopi um, uh, uh, kind of. The Hopi were very spiritual people. It's the the Indians, the Native Americans, sorry, that uh, descended from the Anasazi. There's, you know, the Anasazi is the really ancient Native Americans. But if if you look, they had a belief that the world changes, that it turns into new things, and it, it, it's the evolution, the natural evolution. But they believed in signs, and one of their prophecies, if you want to call it that, is that the world would change into the next phase. I forget if it's the fifth or sixth variation of this will change when the web appear. It said giant web or something appears in the sky. And this is all pictorial. Um, And I've often thought that the most innovative and important development of our time is obviously the World Wide Web but it has changed everything about the nature of what we do. And more importantly, you know, how people get what they believe is the truth. There's a big difference between fact and truth. Truth is partially an interpretation of facts. So that's why you get the saying, everybody has their own truth. Um, But, you know, we relied on people to, who are professionals to interpret this and it's getting lost in the mix of noisiness. So what I hear from people, and I, I usually can tell who's the Fox viewer, who's the CNN viewer, who's the MSN viewer, I can usually hear it. And that's based on what they're hearing just on that. Then you get into the YouTubes, you get into the crazy stuff of conspiratorial stuff, and it gets all mixed up. And the thing that people tell me the most is, I don't know what to believe anymore. And that's a sad place, that means that truth has been under such assault, we don't even know what it is anymore. So, well, let's back up. Look, you've got an exciting career, uh, yeah. certainly. We were discussing uh, earlier in the week. Um, you went, you did the usual small market, you know, right out of college thing. You're doing garden variety, covering fires and uh, parades and all that kind of stuff to start off with, I reckon. I, I mean, I, the first job was a weird thing. Everything's weird. Uh, I, I filled in, I actually got a station 21 alive in Fort Wayne. If you know that area, 21 alive is one of those things. Fort Wayne, uh, the news director, I think Wayne Lepke, uh, uh, asked me, he liked something about what I put together at Bowling Green. And he said, I really like what you have. Can you come here and, um, inter- we want to try you out for weather. I go weather. So I mean, I go out there in front of a green screen. I'm dancing. I don't know anything about weather. <laughs> and he was, he said, I really like your energy, but I don't think weather's your thing. I said, no kidding. And so a reporter got injured, of all things, water skiing. And he called me. He said, I'd like to fill you fill in that. So I said, okay, great. And out and I went and I'm doing it and et cetera. And then the reporter came back and he said, I'd like to make you a producer. I said, I don't want to be a producer. A producer is behind the scenes, timing shows, writing shows, doing And I have a lot of respect for people who do producing because it's a thankless job and they do a lot. But I just didn't want to do that. I just, first of all, I sucked at timing a show. We always came up heavier light. So I said, look, this isn't for me. And I took a job in Terre Haute 
which was uh, um, quite of an experience. I was right downtown in Terre Haute, and the actual station was in a place called Farmersburg. Great station, actually. It's WTWO, W2. And uh, seven months there, uh, and then uh, moved to uh, Roanoke when the news director across town in Terre Haute liked me, and he brought me to Roanoke. I just go through it. Roanoke, and then I went to Raleigh. And here's the thing, Pia. Within short order, when I was in Raleigh, nine months after I arrived in Raleigh, I was covering the first Gulf War in uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, for the station that, locally, like for, or I was covering it for WRAL, but I was associating with a bunch of the networks, and we were working. We were a CBS affiliate, obviously. You know, so that's when I first met Scott Pelley, Um, and there are all kinds of other stories. I knew what did, probably don't mean anything to anyone, but I, I, I was involved in that. So here's a cool little tidbit for you. Um, during and these are this is for our generation, I guess. But uh, during the first Gulf War, they interrupted. I think it was a a football game, and it was in um, January when the air war started. And there were live pictures outside of missiles flying and stuff. That was us. It was me and a photographer on uh, on a cable covering all that. So basically what I did is I covered a lot of the, the, the side angles and did a bunch of stories. But I also was the go-to guy for everybody because we had a pool. Yeah. Anytime the missiles came in, we chased them. That was our job. So we, I was heading to every scene of an intercept that we could go to. So uh, I don't think I have it here. I have it at, oh, I do. Um, if you look right here, where that there, yeah. see that? Yeah. That's a Scud and Patriot shrapnel. Oh, wow. And um, in the middle was the ID um, that I used uh, over there, the military ID. And so... I, you know, it's weird. I'm one of the last uh, local reporters who basically, I've traveled the world. I, I covered Bosnia, um, the peacekeeping mission. We were in the zone of separation. I've walked through a minefield. Um, we were shot at. Uh, we, did, we did a bunch there. It, but I will tell you the, the, the coverage of the first Gulf War, I actually cut my foot on one of the scuds. And when I came back, I lost about 45 pounds. And obviously, that's a long time ago. I was skinny to begin with. And, uh, you know, I had people calling on air. Is he sick? Like, does he have AIDS? What's going on here? <laughs> oh and it was back in that era. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing they jumped to. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it came out a couple of years afterwards. CBS reported that uh, that indeed Saddam Hussein at the time had loaded some of those with biological. So I'm guessing I got residue from that because it was really freaky. Um, and then Bosnia was was incredible. I saw, I mean, I saw the worst of the worst, mass graves, you, you name it, all that. Um, but some of the most heroic people I've ever met are military. So I, I really knew a lot of them. And it was just incredible. I, I can't tell you how many times I've nearly died um, covering this stuff, Central America included. Um, we went down there for stolen babies and ended up covering, you know, the, the, what would happen is they'd steal babies. So the United States didn't have a DNA match between mother and child to prove. So they would just bring them in and they'd be funneled. The babies were stolen. And I also covered the, I, I really, forgive me, pissed off Howard Schultz, the CEO at the time of uh, Starbucks. I was working in Seattle at the time. We went down to Guatemala and other parts of Central America to show the conditions of the coffee workers, knowing that they were presenting a really good face to stockholders when we came back. And so when he did a Q&A, you know, excuse me, Mr. Schultz, how do you think you're treating coffee workers? All the stuff I said, we just got back from uh, Guatemala and Central America. And can I show you some pictures? And I begged to differ. And he walked. He just basically shut me down, walked out. Wow. Walked out. I've, I'm trying to remember. I, something he did. But, oh, they pulled me out. Sorry. They pulled me out. He didn't walk out. Uh, and said, we're going to follow up. We'll do a sit-down interview. And after that, that was the first time that Starbucks did fair trade coffee so that the workers would get a share and their their livelihood would be improved. So, 
you know, a lot of examples of that. I could go on. I've got, so I literally have a war story. Uh, right? You do, yeah. So did did you like being a war correspondent or did you like, I, I can't wait to not be doing this and to be being back in the United States doing more investigative journalism or? Well, I, I mean, I you, you know, the first initial days of, I, I've always done investigative. You said, that, you know, you covered the other stuff. Yeah, I covered a lot of like normal stuff. But I always did investigative reporting. It just kind of naturally gravitated. So at WTWO, they called me the teledective. I'll never forget that. I was like, what is that? <laughs> so, you know, I was like, yeesh. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I've always done uh, all of this with the idea that it mattered. So for me, there was no desire to get back to whatever, there was no normal, right? So I would just go and pursue. And, you know, the old movies would always portray that stupid television reporter, right? That would say, did you get that? Yeah. Well, in the early days, I, I have to admit that I didn't care as much about my safety as I probably should have. And I thought, wow, that is an incredible moment. I always thought that. And I'll give you an example. Crazy story. Um, The head of the, there are factions of the Ku Klux Klan. And as part of this overwhelming investigation of the resurgence of white supremacists in the deep South, what a great way to live, right? I went after that. And, um, so I, there are all kinds of stories I could tell, but the the one that was remarkable was there was a guy by the name of J.W. Ferens. I spent a day at his compound. He was the uh, the head of the oldest faction of the KKK. There are several factions. So this was near Sanford, North Carolina. And I spent the day and I looked up and there was a Knights of Columbus um, thing on his wall, a plaque. And I was like, are you Catholic? And he goes, well, yes, I am. And I, as you came from Connecticut, he's living in North Carolina. He's a Catholic. I said, you seem to be very conflicted, sir, because <laughs> he, you know, we went through the history and stuff. He says, you don't understand. And we don't hate people, you know, the normal stuff. Um, so anyway, I thought I had developed a relationship enough. He turned me down to talk to me on camera for that series, but I, I felt like he knew me enough that I could get a comment from him when the NAACP successfully sued the Klan and won. So we drove out to get a comment. And I am not kidding you. This dude comes out, J.W. Ferens, with a 22 in his hand and a pink bathrobe for no real reason, but points the gun at me, at my head, on camera. The photographer spins, he gets a moment of it. And the only way people ask, and and that was one of many, I always say there are about seven, I think there's seven, seven. Yeah, seven moments of guns at at my head in my career. But people say, well, what'd you do? Um, The worst thing I found, and it was part of my makeup, is to look away. I never looked away, I looked a minute in the eyes. If you're gonna shoot me, you're gonna look at me in the eyes. And uh, I literally started yelling at him, like, what are you doing? Do you realize what would happen if you do that? Put that thing down. You he goes, all right, you know, and then he's finally like, all right, get off my property. And that was it. But, um, you know, when I think about it, back to moments like that, um, that's that's pretty crazy. That's a crazy way to live. Yeah. But, you know, I always thought about this as a mission. So when when those moments would come, um, they were beneficial in demonstrating exactly what we were dealing with. So there you are. That's the way I always thought about it. So the seven times you had guns pointed at you, were they did more of it happen as a war correspondent or were more of them here in the United States? combination of those three of those were um three of those were uh related to the coverage of war um stuff uh bosnia is one of them another time in saudi arabia where 
uh, one of the, I, I got to Riyadh with a photographer. He's too tired, so we needed papers. We went to Central Command, and uh, while I was there, the um, one of the scuds came awfully close to Central Command, and it blew up a building that was the Ministry of Information. So I, I didn't have a photographer, but I, I got down there as quickly as I could. Um, and back in those days, we had a separate camera and stuff. So I got stuff on that. And I'm on the top of the pile, and and one of the Saudi uh, military guys. It was there. They have different branches, but he had a different color uh, of uniform. And he pointed a, a, a machine gun right at me, and he's like, well, "I have no idea what he's saying." And he's pushing up against me. I'm like, "Journalist American, journalist American," over and over. And one of the Saudis, God bless him came over and put his arms around me and between the guy with the gun and then walked me over and he said, I will never forget. This. It still brings tears to my eyes. He said, he handed me prayer beads. So these are, you know, Catholics have rosaries. The uh, Muslims have prayer beads and they're, they, they wrap around the wrist so that you do prayer. Um, and he handed me this and I said, why? Are, why? And he said, this is time to pray. And I said, thank you so much. And he goes, prayer of thanks. And then left. So, you know, those kinds of moments, man, those are so burned in my mind. Amazing. So but you anyway, you said the other stuff. One was a, a father who was distraught about a child who died. Oh, geez. Uh, that's one of them. But, but by and large, it was a a lot of white supremacists and uh, the war correspondent and one domestic deal. So you've pretty much been the investigative journalism on the, that path for most of your career then. So is that you've, you've always done then. And yeah. what are, what are some other crazy stories uh, akin to like the Starbucks one? Is that enough? Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, some of the, everybody always asks what the stories that I remember. And I always say, well, the one I'm working on now and you know, whatever, all of them. Uh, uh, I did a huge story that kind of made a name when I was in Milwaukee. I did a big story about how the nuclear facilities, in this case, Zion nuclear power plant, was susceptible to terrorism. This is way before we, we really took the hit on terrorism. And what I did is, this is back in the day where I had to go to a library in Zion, Illinois. This is the third most densely populated, remember this, third most densely populated area for a nuclear uh, uh, reactor in the world. And it's between Chicago and Milwaukee. And I went to the repository and I found a bunch of stuff where the guards, the security guards and uh, were being cut and they were complaining that we can no longer defend this facility. So uh, I worked with the guards and I worked with several others. I said, so what does that mean? And they said, you can get right into the plant. And I said, but if I get into the plant, what does that matter? They said, if you carry this amount of material, metal, and you get through the layers, um, that's a big problem because then blah, blah, blah. So I did it uh, and went through. Back then, you could do hidden camera just about everywhere. We got right into the middle of the facility before we were stopped saying, what are you doing here? I said, I'm not allowed to be here. They said, oh, my God, get out. And so... Uh, that was one. I did a huge story on a uh, uh, slaughterhouse in uh, one of the biggest slaughterhouses in the world in, um, in Seattle. Uh, it, 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 it's not in Seattle, it's in the state of Washington, but I was showing and I proved that cows were going through so fast they were still alive while they butchered them. Ooh. Um, and that was a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, every story has had this major impact as it went. There have been laws changed, et cetera. I, I went after corruption in Cleveland. Uh, two of the main figures on that uh, went, are still in federal prison, will die there. Um, and uh, they, a, a county auditor and a county um, executive, so, uh, auditor and commissioner. So... Do yeah. you, you work from tips normally, or do you like say, this situation looks a little odd to me? Maybe is there more to this? And then you kind of start digging from there? 
I do a combination. I don't really rely on one channel. Um, sometimes it's a tip. Someone tells me something, but um, and that leads to other stuff. I do. I tend to do bigger picture things these days um, because I, I found you know you can write a wrong, but you can write a lot more wrong if you go bigger. Um, and what I mean by that is we're still you know it's still important to right the wrong for the people. By the way, I hate this expression. I'm trying to change this in the code of ethics. They hate the expression voice for the voiceless. Uh, even though it sounds so noble and wonderful, it's very paternalistic. Um, these people who are not being heard definitely have a voice. It's about the system not hearing them. That's ah. really what I keep saying. So uh, how do I get it? I mean, I, it's a combination of things. And after this amount of time, I kind of... You know, whatever I see as an injustice that's on a bigger level or something we can do to to interrupt. Let me I'll give you one more really, really important story. And this one's sad. Um, if I had to define what I do, I often gravitate to one story. Um, I still have it. Yeah, I have other awards for this, including the. ALS Association, I can show you that. This is the the story I'm probably most proud of. And if you read that name, it says John Hunter. And it's the John Hunter Champion Award. And that was given to me by his wife, his widow. Um, and I'll take you through this. This is probably most defines me. And I've got a zillion awards and, and whatever. It's fine. Um, and I'm very proud of all that, but this story to this day epitomizes what I'm supposed to be doing. John Hunter was a guy in a small town outside of, uh, Cleveland who was remarkably extraordinary in his simplicity and his understanding of life. I got a tip from, I didn't get the tip as a producer I worked with, got a tip that he was denied social security benefits, disability, after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. The ALS is Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and I read the letter and it said, while we, if I remember it, while we acknowledge that you are uh, without the use of one arm and are losing the ability to lose, use the other, you can still walk. And they denied him social security disability and i went red hot that made me insane and so i called up social security i said what the f are you talking about <laughs> is this really how you do the this well you have to understand the procedure and stuff can i talk to someone on camera and i filleted him on camera i mean i filleted him and i very seldom over talk or i did maybe back then but these days but I just was like, you're, there's nothing you can say to defend this. Why are you sitting here trying? Because it's my job. And I said, you have a horrible job. I remember that. So uh, they ended up giving uh, John Hunter his disability payments. And I went to tell him that. And I said, I have an idea, John, and I, I want to see if I can do this. I want to see if we can do something to to prevent anyone with Lou Gehrig's from having to go through this. And I'm going to take this to Washington, D.C. And before I finished, he said, I'm going with you. And I said, John, you know, this is taking a hold of you. Are you sure you want to spend it? He said, no, I want to go. So we took him, and obviously he was having trouble walking at this point. And we went to everybody, senators, other uh you know congressional offices and everybody spoke to him and promised him that they would work on it in the end i spent a lot of time with social security and lo and behold they passed the you know unilaterally without congressional action a thing that was called presumptive eligibility for anyone who gets lou gehrig's disease and I told them, I don't care what you're calling it. I'm calling it the John Hunter rule. And that's what it's known as today. Wow. And um, John, I spoke at his, I, I mean, I'm still, this one just gets me because what a loss. He died 
I visited him every week. God, he was amazing. Anyway, I actually fed him a couple of times. I took him out, fed him. And toward the end, he was, he was, it was so bad that, you know, he couldn't do much. And he asked me to put the straw up to his mouth to drink the beer. Hmm. He wanted the beer. When he passed away, I gave his eulogy. And that one, more than anyone, represents what I think is the, the, the essence of what we do in journalism, and especially when it's, when, it's, when it's targeted toward an injustice. That's why it's important. And you're doing a lot of uh, people probably know you from anchoring the weekend news and sometimes the weekend Sunday news. Only. Yeah, Sunday I only. Is, Sunday it, only is that a nice break that. or is it, is it something is it nice to flex that muscle or is it, is it something? Because I know yeah. we've talked to other news folks or like a lot of the weather folks over on 19 get roped into doing street reporting. And some of them are keen. Some of them are not. They're like, eh, it's, it's okay. I'd rather just do weather. But, you know, is that something you'd like to do? or is I, it, uh, I did that originally. I put it in the contract. I've done main anchoring, and it's a real skill set that's very different from what I do. Um, it, it, you basically have to turn off that, that hard-ass look that often goes with, sorry to cuss, but uh, that goes with, uh, with um, investigative reporting and just be you. You have to show your authentic self a formal version of your authentic self. So I, I, I like the ability only to do that only because it keeps me rooted to the basics of what we do. So, so I'm, I'm go in and I'm heavily of course involved in writing. So I know that format. And by the way, that's getting to be a lost art form is writing itself. But, um, so I do that and it keeps me rooted to what newsrooms are supposed to do. It keeps me on my feet with the other stuff. But at some point, I'll walk away from that because, again, um, what I'm doing on the investigative side, it, you know, I literally work seven days a week. I really do. There's not a day that I, as you know, you tried to get me and I'm like yeah. running around. Yeah. Um, and I apologize if that should not have happened anyway. Um, the, the, the point is, is that uh, at some point I, 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 I can't do it at all. You hear how busy the schedule is, but, yeah. um, you know, I may have to tuck that away uh, in terms of anchoring, especially <laughs> I got to tell you, I work with a wonderful, I'm not just saying this. She is an incredible anchor and Morella and Morella is just fantastic. Uh, but just to you'd give you an idea, she's in her 20s, right? So, you know, I've always mentored all the way through, and she doesn't need much mentoring. She's just a natural. Um, but uh, at a certain point, I, you know, almost 60-year-old dude, you know, so I think about that. And I know that most people don't see it that way because the energy level has to be matched and that, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, what gasses me is investigative. That keeps me fresh on the, just, I'm still connected to the newsroom deal. And do you work on like one story at a time or do you usually have a lot of irons in the fire and some get hot and some don't? Yeah, that's the, yeah, you nailed it. PF. The, um, you know, I'm probably juggling at any given time, a couple of dozen oh, wow. and trying to noodle on it. And sometimes I have to really kind of tuck it away because I'm not quite sure um, and then I'll come back to it. Um, I can tell you the one, you know, I don't do a lot of stories these days. You also, there's a layer of which ones you're going to stay with, you know, like which ones do you think you can do some good on? And so, um, the one that I've really fixated on in the past year and a half to two years is the radioactive contamination connected to cancer around the facilities that produced our bombs. And that's uh, a lot of it uh, that I've done is centered on the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant in Piketon. Piketon's obviously known for the murders that happened um, uh, several years ago with the Roden family. Um, but the the uh, the fact is is that this is an incredible thing when you start digging into it. The connections. 
the, and I started it off with the story of Zach Farmer, who was an all American um, baseball pitcher who went to Ohio State. And everybody knew the story that he died of leukemia, but very few asked where he grew up, which was basically a mile and a half from this plant. And that was a perfect way to kind of say, what the hell is going on? And as I've gone deeper into this, I've realized um, how insane it is because you're dealing with the government saying, no, there's no harm. And then you're picking up things like, and forgive me, americium and neptunium, which are both markers for plutonium in a facility that was processing uranium. So you go, okay, what's going on? And so I've tied it back to plutonium. You wanna, do you want me to give you a little bit of a tip sure. on what's coming? Yeah, absolutely. How about we tie that material that was coming in there to Russia? And that's what I'm finding. And I'm not going to go too deep with this, hmm. but there is conclusive evidence that regular shipments from Russia were being made to Ohio and other plants across the U.S. And, and the part that I'm looking at is, do we really know what was sent over here? And so far, um, the documentation is very clear. We did not for years. Wow. So, uh, and when I tell you uh, in the story, and you can follow up if you want, but the story is so insane, so crazy, and so disturbing. It is what an old boss of mine said. It it lifts the veil on the myth of life. Wow. And that's... Kind of what I do. Wow. Deep stuff. Yeah. I, I, I don't, it's my life. I yeah. mean, it's what I do. Um, the, the, the other part is what I keep coming back to is I, I know I'm not made like other people. I, I assume PF, you have those moments where you feel that way. Oh too. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, we get a little bit self-absorbed on that. I don't think anyone's made like anyone else. That makes you unique. But I find that um, the only difference between what I've done and what other people have done is I just never stopped being curious and I never let convention get in the way. So if people said you can't do that, I'm like, yeah, watch, you know. So that's one of the things that I see with some of the generational gaps is there's this kind of like, I don't think we can do that. I'm like, you can do anything you want. And that's, that's the part of it. It's the only thing I find that holds people back is themselves. And I will tell you the other part, the great truisms is that first of all, the people we cover are the heroes, not the journalists. I'm not the hero. The people we cover are the heroes. I just have a unique skill set, a weird kind of way of looking at life that can frame it and present it where it's understandable. That's a gift. Don't get me wrong. It's a real gift. A lot of people don't know how to communicate. But to stand up and say that my life matters and I'm going to change it, that's the people we cover. And there are so many people that do this. And even when done the best as it can, their lives are in shambles. So... I find the heroic nature of courage is very rare. I used to think it was common. It's very rare. But that's the thin line. That's the real thin line between things going uh, horribly wrong and fixing a system that's going the wrong way. And there are enough courageous individuals. I think, you know, people talk about the times we're living in. They forget before us it was the 60s and everything was a mess. And you can go back and back and back. I do believe that the good people far outnumber the bad people and courage is the component that changes everything. Wow. Well put. Uh, That's just kind of the truisms as we go along. The other part (laughs) is that journalism is in trouble, um, but we'll get that right. We're trying yeah, I mean, you it, journal, we'll always have journalism in some form or another, be you know, with the technology. I don't know. You know? I, don't know. I, I mean, it depends on what you call journalism. Um, most of what I see anymore are, um, you know, I, I watch different things. So 
I will see like whatever on discovery history, you name it. And someone comes up as a quote unquote journalist. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, you're not a journalist. You know, it's funny it's, you say that because, um, you know, I wrote a lot for city beat and things, entertainment writing and, and for lack of a better name, I would say to people, you know, I'm a journalist, but I'm not really a journalist. I kind of fell in you know, city beat. I, I have a lot of, you know, a lot of respect for these publications that do this. I mean, you know, different, uh, you know, you're talking about a non-traditional publication, although it is traditional, it's more urban driven. Um, the, I think some real journalism is being done within the. Oh yeah. Schools. My colleagues. Yeah. But I'm just saying, not me, me talking, to, me talking to comedians and reviewing CDs is not no. journalism. I mean, I've done no, some stories. No, there's a, there's a part of that that's important as well. Yeah, and I've done stories on other things, and I, I'll tell you another quick story. Um, I, uh, my daughter and I were, she was doing a photography class. We went up to Kings Island. She wanted to take pictures of the roller coasters. We went behind the hotel there, and we went right up to the gates. And she's standing on the hood of the car taking pictures of the. And all of a sudden, the Westchester police show up, and we're thinking they think we're trespassing. They stop us. They they pull. They um get us. Uh, uh, us walk backwards, they cuff us, they throw us in separate squad cars. Well, oh. here, there was an incident at the uh, hotel, and the escape car was a white sedan, just like we had. So oh, they, they have, and a buddy of mine who is um, who works out, and he's a stand-up comedian, but he's gotten involved in uh, kind of political discussion, has his own team. I, interviewed, I had to come home and interview him for City Beat, and I, and I told him the story, and he's like, did you tell him you were a journalist? And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not. And secondly, I don't want to make him mad because they were like really upset. So that's just a little aside there. You know, um, that's, that's also one of the things um, that's uh, everything's social justice right now. So I'm, I'm yeah. old enough to have rewards that are 30 plus years of social justice. Um, you know, I don't want to take anything away from, anyone fighting for this change that's needed. Um, I do believe we have to get to a point where we talk to each other. For sure. And that, that's really uh, my fear on the current environment where one side says woke and the other side says fascist, that you you start looking at um, a real separation. I, none of this is original thought, but I, I just... I talk to people. I don't, I don't, I'm not, a de people know I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I don't really care. Um, I've seen good people on both sides of this and there, a lot of it's a side show, you know, um, politics doesn't equate anything with truth. Uh, if you're talking about the death of truth that started in politics, um, years ago, and there are Supreme court decisions that including the one, that says that you can lie in campaign commercials and it's not an obligation of truth. Um, the point is that by and large, I talk to probably more people than most people I know every day. Most people are good. I mean, really, honestly, they just want to do it, but they're getting, they're getting messages like my own mother will call me and she's a smart woman. And she'll say, do you believe what they're doing in the schools? I said, well, mom, what are you talking about? And she would, she'll, she'll, you know, tell me about a certain thing. I said, mom, what are you watching? <laughs> what did you see? And so they think there's an indoctrination. And again, that, that needs to be examined about the, 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 you know, there are parts of that that definitely need to be examined, but you know, this conspiratorial underpinning that everybody is against us and there's an, ins you know, we're not living Hollywood. It didn't work that way. And the last I checked, a school board will listen to people, maybe not right away, but they will listen eventually because you, the power rests with us. That's what people keep forgetting is. Yeah, exactly. We're still in a democracy. And if you don't like it, vote the bastards out. Or, or do something to get yourself engaged. The worst thing that's happened to us is from our era, era PF, our era was the start of apathy and of self-involvement. Yep. And so that created the big problem here. 
Sorry to go on and on. No, that's a, I think that's a good place to to leave it here for the day because I know you've got things to do and you're a busy man. It was great catching up though. This was a lot of fun. Um, Are we going to have a BG reunion of sorts? We Is should. that going to happen? We should. I mean, we've got Lisa Lisa Braun. Lisa, don't forget Lisa. Lisa's uh, the over at the Reds. Over at the Reds, uh, Rob Irvin uh, works at a hospital now. Actually, he's an overnight Lisa Drawn with the D. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zimmerman. Uh, Everyone's within, like, is either here or in Cleveland. Uh, Mark Ryan. Uh, Mark Ryan, I still see. I've tried to friend request. Remember Mark Ryan? Yeah, drama. He does the theater at. at a no, Zimmer, in Zimmerman does the theater. Mark Ryan oh, does. Oh, yeah, Mark Ryan. Oh, yeah, well, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, he loves the baby Jesus and works for, uh, I think, a Christian station up in Cleveland. So everyone's either here or in Cleveland, basically. I think yeah, the, so the, other, the other one is, of course, Scott, famous Scott at. He was a friend, friend of the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, go back and listen to his episode. That was a lot of fun. He told me, he once said, uh, he once, real quick, he once said on the air, uh, I, he went to a very uh, liberal school. And I'm like, dude, did you go to a place other than Bowling Green? Because I think we went to the same college. And I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think it was more liberal than the town. I'll give you that. It was more liberal than the town, but I'm sorry. It, it's, it wasn't Berkeley. It wasn't Berkeley in, on the on the. Uh, I do remember there. the protests when Reagan came. Yeah, yeah. My buddy and I went down there to get our pictures taken by the CIA, my roommate, as a gag. Because he told you me that. He goes, he goes, the CIA takes your pictures when you go to these things, right? And um, and we, I don't know if that was true or not. It's an urban legend probably. You were always, we're like, you were always quirky. You were yeah, always quirky. people describe Yeah, it's a good word people use to describe this. Yeah, so we went down to uh, right by the arena. And uh, just wandered around and figured, well, the, the, the CIA probably has our pictures by now. Let's go back to the room and have a beer. So, you well, know, you've changed a little in appearance, but your voice is the same. Yeah, it's that, uh, people have uh, said that as well. I meant it to, to, to keep the pipes. Although I'm too, too mushmouthed to get uh, people. I say, oh, you should do voiceover work. And I'm, I'm still too mushmouthed, though, to do it properly. So, but yeah. maybe. Um, Listen, I, I'm so glad we touched base. I'm so sorry it took this long. Oh, that's fine. I'm a big fan, by the way, of what you guys do at Cincy uh, uh, Shirts. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, one last order of business we have is as the guest, I don't know if you know this from the previous episodes of the podcast, but you get to pick the coupon code <laughs> that folks can use uh, in our store or online. It can be a. How many? Uh, how many what? It could be a. a Couple, couple words or just one word phrase, and we'll use that as the coupon code online or in the stores. And for the next week, people can take 20% off uh, their purchase. So what would you like that word or phrase to be? BGSU87. Yes. All right. Very good. Perfect. And, we, and cool. we have official BG merchandise, too. So um, people can use yeah, it on that. Yeah, from right here, man. Come on. Right. <laughs> love. Right. <laughs> All right. You get the BG stuff set this way. Look, best to you. Thank you for having me on. Um, of all the cities, Cincinnati is an incredible place. People, by and large, grew up and live here. Yep. And I know they know that. But trust me, I grew up uh, and have lived everywhere. Cincinnati is one of the best cities in the world. I promise you that. Livability, beauty, and just people. And I know a lot of people say food, but that's not my thing. Um, oh, it is for that, though. Is, yeah. it, just, it has everything of, a, of what you want in a city. So God bless Cincinnati, Ohio, USA. Well put. Uh, Willie wouldn't, couldn't have said it better. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Be great. Bye. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try, ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Dwayne Pullman. Well, I had a uh, difficult time picking a playout song for that, but I figured I wanted something, you know, I try to pick something that has something to do with the uh, what the person does. And so Dwayne has to ask a lot of questions to people. And the Smiths, I figured, are one of the quizzitential college radio bands of the 1980s. So there you have it, Ask by the Smiths. 
And uh, let me see here. If you haven't already, I'm going to invite you to check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. We've got everything from baseball great Johnny Bench, uh, Amy Yazbeck, the actress from Blue Ash, and all kinds of great episodes back there. 208 of them at 209 with this one, so be sure to get those sorted wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music in Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, and so many more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of defunct sports teams, old malls, old restaurants, things like that. Uh, Just like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns, as we like to say. And again, the promo code for this episode is BGSU87, as in Bowling Green State University 87. BGSU87, uppercase, lowercase, that part doesn't matter, of course. You can use that to take 20% off your next order at cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com, or you can use it once at each site. little uh, pro tip there for you. Or you can come in our stores, Hyde Park and over the Rhine, and say, I'd like to use the podcast code BGSU87, and you will get 20% off. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest NC Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye. I wish I said goodbye.